Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to pick up at the same point as last week. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. We suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. (coughs) I don't usually bring drinks into the pulpit because the man I used to work for in Toledo said it was it was weakness. And so I'm being weak before you today. I have uh, <clears throat> I have this chest and 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 uh, throat thing. So let me take a a drink of hot coffee here to to uh, help. <clears throat> All right, First Timothy chapter six. We we worked through the first few verses of of this last time and left off when the Paul turn when when the apostle Paul turns to discuss godliness godliness pastor Timothy is being warned to watch for those who advocate different doctrines and um, different different from those of Jesus Christ different from those found in the word of God he described those conceited teachers those arrogant teachers as having a nauseating interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, um, out of which will arise terrible things like envy and strife and abusive language, evil suspicions and constant friction. Then the Apostle Paul writes that these wicked people do something. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness is a means of gain. How is it that the wicked think that godliness is a means of gain? Um, Because as he writes in the next sentence, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Certainly that is not the manner in which those who reject God's word hope to, you know, (coughs) it's not what they hope to gain by practicing godliness. Um, the gain that wicked, the wicked hope to gain 
um, through, through faking godliness, by making an outward show of religion without an inward faith, is what, what all people crave away from Jesus Christ. Power, money, followers, um, influence, comfort, um, insurance. Uh, but what stands out most in this last chapter of Timothy is money. Right? What they want to gain is money, and that's where the section we've read ends. It goes to money. With money come the other things. With money come, or at least the illusion of other things, power, followers, influence, comfort. The illusion of those things come with money. Look ahead at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 7. He turns to possessions and the inability they have in contributing to our afterlife. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Uh, That's a simple truth. That's a simple and undeniable truth. King Solomon. Think of King Solomon, a rich man himself, um, and one who thought about riches. (coughs) Said on his deathbed, the following about money, and it's undoubtedly what the Apostle Paul had in mind as he wrote, as, as he wrote this about money to Timothy. Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the, stu- the, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. And then he goes on, he says, There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, there was nothing to support him. And he had, as he had come naked from his mother's wombs, oh, will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Right? Riches give the illusion of salvation. That's what they do. They give the illusion of salvation, and yet they are unable to save a man. As a man is born absolutely dependent on other people, so he will die absolutely dependent upon God and God's mercy. But consider the fact that the Apostle Paul is addressing people, think of this, people who use godliness, or we could say religion, or we could say ritual, um, the outward performance of godliness, for getting rich. That's who he's addressing, those who feign godliness in order to get rich. It's one thing for a man to work with his hands to produce some sort of good and over time build his income, build his wealth, and become a wealthy man. It's quite another thing to become a pastor or a seminary professor or a theological writer or a conference speaker for the purpose of amassing wealth. It is indeed true that the worker is worthy of his wages. Pastors and seminary professors, etc., should be paid according to their work. 
They should desire to provide food and clothing and laying up an inheritance for your children. But many pursue religion simply in order to get rich. Um, John Piper doesn't. He could have been rich from his book writing A Pursuit of Religion, but he determined to put all of his royalties back into his ministry. He doesn't get any of those royalties. He doesn't even hold the copyrights on them, I believe. Um, his ministry does. And, and this may not seem modest to many of you, but at the, the end of his pastorate of a very large church, he, was, he made about $100,000 a year. Purposely low for a huge church. Um, that's a pittance compared to many other leaders of ministries. And you begin to wonder if many people are more concerned to make money than they are to minister the Word of God. right? But again, how despicable is it, think of this, to fake godliness, to practice religion simply for the purpose of monetary gain? Um, I'm not opposed to wealth. I'm not opposed to money. I'm not opposed to attempting to make much of it for the purpose of being generous to our families and to our church and to others in general. But again, that is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who pursue religion so that they may become rich. Um, they do not pursue God in order to know Him. They, they pursue godliness in order to have a summer home. They do not pursue God in order to cling to Him for their salvation. They pursue godliness in order to have fancy clothes. Jim Baker pursued religion for, the, for that purpose. Right? Health and wealth preachers pursue religion for that purpose. TBN pursues religion for this purpose. Reformed celebrities pursue religion for that purpose too. I have questions about whether they do or not. How many men... How many men would abandon their flock in order to get on the conference circuit? Getting paid to give a few lectures to adoring crowds. And I have concerns. I wouldn't be immune to the pull of that money. I would not be immune to the pull of that money. As it was in Paul's time, so it is in our time. So it has been through all the ages, right? There are many people who pursue the outward works of piety, of godliness, simply in order to make money. Remember, the elder, the apostle had previously said in this letter, is to be free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. He should have no love of money. Jude 10 begins a passage that sounds strangely similar to what we learn uh, here from the apostle Paul. In it, we learn that certain men, for pay, enter into the love feasts of the people of God, not to worship the Lord, but for their own sordid gain. Listen to this. This is one of the most striking passages in the New Testament. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. Remember Paul said these guys understand nothing. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, right? They're only focused on themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by the winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars, 
for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Those who enter into the church for pay in order to mislead the people of God. No mincing of words here by by Jude. Those who pursue religion for their own selfish gain have an inheritance coming, and that's black darkness forever. Make religion a means of satisfying your flesh, and that will be your inheritance too. Make preaching, make deaconing, make eldering, make lecturing, make speaking, make writing, make fake word fake outward shows of piety, religiosity, a means of making money, and you will be separated from God. You will be separated from God's benevolent presence forever unless you repent. And today is the day to repent. We must all guard ourselves against the temptation to pursue godliness for worldly gain. Godliness, the apostle then writes actually is a means of great gain. And then he adds this key phrase, when accompanied by contentment. Contentment. If the pursuit of godliness is not accompanied by contentment, being satisfied with just food and clothing, then inevitably the pursuit of godliness will be corrupted by desires for worldly things. If the pursuit of godliness isn't isn't combined with contentment, then you're pursuing it for the wrong reasons. How many people are pursuing godliness? Perhaps it's you, perhaps it's me. Merely as a means to this end, to be respectable among your family members. Or or some of us pursue religion merely so that we can boast. Some of us pursue religion merely as a means to have a positive attitude. Right? To feel good about ourselves, you know? I did my duty this week. I worshiped God. You know, I'm good. Or, or we, we, we pursue godliness merely as a means to be with people we, we like. Uh, merely as a means to, I mean, how many people pers- who go to church, who pursue religion, who pursue godliness, simply to make their parents happy? Rather, rather, than as a means to know and worship God Almighty. It's amazing to me how I can fall into the sin of going through the motions, right? Of checking off the boxes of religiosity, of, of, of duty when it comes to the pursuit of godliness, and how far that pursuit can be from tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. I use... Um, Use the pursuit of godliness as a means of dealing with some of those uh, little discontentments. But not as, as a way of acknowledging the reality of God in heaven and proclaiming His greatness by imitating his, that greatness. Um, dear brothers and sisters, uh, think, of, think of the psalm that Michael preached a few weeks ago. The wicked pursue violence and the godly pursue righteousness. Right? Because God is a God of righteousness, and that psalm then says what? He loves righteousness. Right? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. 
and the upright, the godly, those who pursue him, will behold his face. Notice that last verse, the upright will behold his face. Jesus delighted to do his Father's will. Is that your delight? Is it your delight to do the Father's will? Do you rejoice in your sanctification because you know it is God at work in you and that's pleasing to God, right? Do, you, do we have to couch everything in justification, right? And forget about the fact that the pursuit of godliness with contentment is a means of great gain. Uh, I hope not. I hope you know that it is Jesus Christ and his work that have made this pursuit of holiness possible for you. Right? Without his justifying work, we would, we would not at all delight or even know about our sanctification, our growth in holiness. But fundamentally, do you pursue holiness because God is worthy? Do you, do you pursue godliness because God is glorious? Do you pursue the one thing in all the universe, God himself, that is worthy of adoration and praise? Do you have a longing in your heart to be with and worship your Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you love Him by pursuing His commandments? If not, question whether your pursuit of godliness is genuine. Look at the object of your affection that eclipses your love for God and kill it. Kill it. Study the holiness of God. Meditate on Him. Repent and ask God to change your pursuits, to change your affections, to change your view ultimately of Him. Right? Ask Him to open your eyes to spiritual realities. Ask Him to break your love and pursuit of money. Comfort. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What did that man have after he bought that field? He had Jesus and nothing else. He sold all he had. He got that pearl of great price. He had that one thing. That one thing. He had Jesus, right? He had the kingdom of heaven. Um, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls and a pine, finding one of great value. He went and sold all that he had and bought it. He gave up all the rest. To get that one thing, the kingdom of heaven. And we we look at those verses and we say, I believe, help my unbelief. Now think of this statement. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. (laughs) It's hilarious. If we have food and covering with these, we should be content. Let's have a, a show of hands of people who find themselves content with merely food and clothing. Right? Yep, no one put their hands up. I don't think Americans can conceive of contentment with this kind of extreme restriction. Right? Um, contentment with merely food and clothing? Um, what about an education? There's no contentment without education today, right? The, um, what about entertainment? What about an iPhone? What about um, any new labor saving device? Right? What about a computer? What about insurance? What about a 401k? What about long-term care? Um, the, I mean, the list of things that, that we have to have in order to be content is massive. 
It's massive. It's, it gets very long for you, doesn't it? If you stop and think, I wouldn't be content without this. It's a huge list. And Scripture challenges us to be content with three things. Food, clothing, and Jesus. In his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, I mean, it's, it's good that he called it that, right? The rare jewel. This is so rare among Christians, contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs meditates on the Apostle Paul's statement in Philippians, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He writes this, Contentment is to be learned as a great mystery. And those who are thoroughly trained in this art, which is like Solomon's riddle, or Samson's riddle to a natural man, have learned a deep mystery. In other words, it's hard. It's very hard to learn contentment. And those who have it have a rare jewel. He states that contentment must be pursued. It must be learned by God's grace. His definition of contentment then is this. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Right? Just the quiet spirit that submits to what God has for us. That's what contentment is. In other words, contentment leads a person to rest in God. To rest in God alone. Um, The psalmist put it this way, My soul waits upon God. Do you long for that quietness of your mind, of your spirit, that rests in God no matter what your circumstances? I hope you do. Of course you do if you know God. Right? Have you known those quiet moments of contentment? Just quiet moments where all you need is is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Have you tasted that contentment? Are you constantly out of sorts, roaring from one thing to the next, pursuing this or that thing that promises you some sort of contentment, at least in one area of your life? I, I fear that I won't know contentment until I have a study that is soundproof in my home with wood paneling, Right? And a nice leather chair. Um, but it's got to be soundproof. Right? Absolutely soundproof so that I get like sick because there's no noise. Right? I, I fear my wife won't know contentment until the world is rid of stomach flu. <laughs> and it just shows you our immaturity. Right? Our hope to find contentment, not in submitting to God's fatherly disposal in every condition, but in the relief of our, our, our daily annoyances. That's where we find contentment. Our daily fears. If only God would take care of my daily fears, then I would know contentment. I'm concerned that our children, the children of our church, not just my own, are learning to be content only in acquiring stuff. Right? Rather than in the pursuit of God, which will allow them the joy of leaving behind stuff, leaving behind the goods of the world. I want to see our our children going outside to pray. I want to see our children going out, you know, going outside to pray and, and pursuing their relationship with God. I want to hear 
them talking about God's greatness with one another and not laughing at bodily functions. You know, there is only one worthy pursuit in this life, and that is to know God. That's it. And in knowing God, there should be great contentment. Contentment will free you children up from a life of pursuing comfort in, in, and security in the things that can neither comfort nor secure you. Now rest in God. Rest in God. Right? Be content to think about Him. Free yourselves from entertainment. Be content, dear brothers and sisters, with your possession of Jesus Christ. Be content with that. Or rather with his possession of you. Right? Be content with his possession of you. Um, you have found a pearl of great price. Can you be content with that? You can be. You can be content with that. Of course you can be content with that. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray and ask that you would grant to us repentance. Lord, we have... We have even prayed a long laundry list of those things that we need from you in order to be content. We need this. We need that. We need, we need help. We need uh, whatever it may be. And Father, we, we're like the Israelites. We simply grumble and complain. Grumble and complain even though you have provided for us our daily bread. Father, I pray that you might you might cause us to reflect and think on this. Think on our discontentment. And repent of it and find contentment in food, clothing, and the kingdom of heaven. Lord, may we rejoice. Not that people think well of us, but that our names are written in the book of life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.